I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. In this episode, I'm joined by members of the Elan Collective. Actor Misha Sharifkar, writer Michael Manning, and director Jeanette Lambermont-Morin to talk about their Toronto Fringe production of Of a Blank Canvas or the Distance Between the Bridge and the Water. On now with the Toronto Fringe until July 16th. In this conversation, we talk about the origins of the play, how the collective came together, and much more. Here's our conversation. The show is of a blank canvas. So who wants to give me the elevator pitch about what of a blank canvas is? Is that you, Jed, or me? Okay. I, go for it. Uh, so it's of a blank canvas or the distance between the bridge and the water. That's part of the title as well. And this is an investigation into the dilemma that an artist, an artistic creative being has when they bump up against a block, a creative block, a mental block, and the uh, resulting mental health challenges that come with that. And it's really relevant right now because, of course, coming out of the pandemic, we all share a bit of that feeling. So this character goes on a journey to figure out what's wrong, how to balance things for themselves again, and on the way encounter some gods and some creatures and a pigeon and various fun characters. <laughs> and at the end, it ends happily. Well, that's that's good. The, the happy endings are good. Um, now, this is a, a, a the way you've described it, there's, there's a, a cast of, of thousands. Yes. Um, but uh, but actually a cast of three, I believe. Is that the two right. or three? Three? So um, how do you go about with this cast of thousands uh, being portrayed by just a couple of people? Well, I mean, like, at a technical level, I just sort of set out to write a bunch of three-handers. It was, um, I always believe that, like, restrictions breed creativity in a way. So that's actually, like, something I myself have said to start writing on this. I'm like, no more than three people in this. And how we've been sort of weaving that together thematically um, is looking at different aspects of the artist's person. And 
for myself, I think that like who you are is influenced by so many things. It's influenced by your family. It's influenced by your relationships, uh, the people you've met, the things you've experienced. And so it's sort of looking at how you break that down into like fractions of the cycle. Yeah, the, 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 the three characters are three distinct parts of our artists. So there's the, the artist, the artistic being. There is the social citizen, the part of that human who's trying to interact with the rest of the world to be a productive and responsible member of society. And there's the child, the child that has had traumatic experience of some sort and has to somehow reconcile that in an adult, uh, in adult life mm-hmm. as a it's interesting the uh, the all of the, the the limitations that you speak of uh, and how that does breed creativity. Um, you know, you've you've got all these situations where people have like infinite money for to to create a, a a massive set with lights and projections and all this sort of stuff, and yet sometimes when you pare that down, you just put like two people on a stage, it, it can be more moving and more special than than having all the money in the world. Um, so in terms of, of, of creating something that had the limitations, how, how did these limitations serve you in the writing process? Uh, how did they serve me? Well, I would say that like when I was getting into it, because of these limitations and, and sort of how I wanted to go about this, really didn't try to do the mental stitching through at the start. I sort of was like, you know what? I'm going to start writing these things that, on their own insular bubbles feel right to me and feel like the voice in my head of like these characters is like speaking to me and telling me something interesting to follow and that I didn't worry about how we stitch that together. It's just like, this is an important moment and I know this has to be in the story and then trusting that the rest will come with time and like come with these fabulous characters in the room and watching them work be like, oh, this connects to this now and like I see how this character's through line we start in this one story connects to like other story so i think it's a lot like forcing me to trust that it would be there (laughs) so have you been editing as rehearsal or going on are you discovering these connections just that they're already there well i want to jump in here because i'm also dramaturg on this and we've been working for a couple of months already so there definitely have been many iterations before rehearsal this is just day three in the rehearsal hall so we're right at the beginning um, but I think what you're referring to, Michael, is how uh, it, we're getting that real detail, exquisite detail that's coming out of working with the actors. Um, but the the kind of core journey we have laid out already. And so we're working with a roadmap that we've all agreed on and uh, finessing with that in mind now. Nice. So I want to hear the story about how all of you came together to... Uh, uh, work on this this show. It it was honestly all pure luck. Like <laughs> everything that has happened for this production has just been luck. Um, it all started when I think in the fall one of our colleagues got us all to apply for the fringe. So all of our friends, our whole friend group at George Brown, uh, all joined in the lottery, um, and we were all we all got together on the day that they announced the results, and we were all sitting in in one of our castmates' room waiting to hear the results, and they announced that I, I won the slot um, under the name of the Elon Collective, which was so exciting. Um, but, you know, I'm just a student in my second year of theater school, um, and this, like, daunting task of producing a whole show in just a couple of months with nothing. Um, 
was terrifying. And so obviously I lent, I, I leaned on my friends um, and I got Michaela Mori to co-produce with me. Um, and we had a lot of options. We thought about potentially devising. We thought about um, looking at some of our friend scripts. Michael's script was always on the table because we, we had all been reading it. We'd all been reading early drafts. Um, and then Jeanette kind of approached us having read Michael's script and said, hey, this is really cool. I'd like to direct this. Um, and then that's kind of where it started. So it started with, I would say, the four of them. Um, so Michael, myself, Jeanette, and Michaela. And then slowly our team just grew over time. And pretty much everyone involved up until, I would say, a month ago has been all people in the sort circle of George Brown Theater School. Um, so just using our very humble connections and trying to make this show happen. I'm going to jump in and challenge you there because uh, the George Brown connections, your classmates, that is a very powerful group. That is, there's, let's not refer to that as humble. Once you get a group of, of theater students together, that is a powerful group of people. So um, there's nothing humble about that. And it's a ama- pretty good a- accomplishment to, 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 to have a show that's coming out of theater school in your second year because you will learn so much. And I'm curious... What have you learned so far about producing a show that you didn't know? Um, everything. It is. It is. It is absolutely not what I what what I thought it would be. Um, it is one of the biggest challenges I've taken on in the last few years. I've I've sort of produced small community theater productions in the past, but this is not small. This is fringe. Um, Toronto would be. It, it is. It would hypothetically be my Toronto debut. So there was a lot of pressure there. Um. Takes a lot of organization. Uh, oh boy, I, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't even know where to start because it is such a daunting task. Um, I mean, you just said that it was one of the the most daunting things that you've ever done. But did you do a period study this year? I, 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 I know, I know, and I would say period study was so hard. It made it so Jeanette directed period study, um, and so it was easy because of that in a way because of all the trust we have. Um, but. But I would say producing is definitely slightly above period study. <laughs> slightly above. <laughs> oh, what? I'll ask. What period did you do? We did the Restoration Era. Oh shit! That's that. That was the the era that that, that my class did in nineteen whatever it was that that uh, I was at George Brown. So we also did the the Restoration period. Oh no! Wait, what what play did you do? Oh, shit. I don't I remember. I did. <laughs> You're asking. I'm an old man. It, it's hard for me yeah, to remember. Uh, did we do school for scandal? Maybe we did school for scandal. Scandal is just like the later year. Yeah, no, it is. And I don't. I don't remember any of the plays that we did. I remember fly, I have flashes of moments from that thing. But let's face it, it's six to eight hours of performance, and after that, you just have to like erase <laughs> as much of it from your brain as possible because you've crammed too much in there. Oh, totally. I remember I remember I had my my main part in period study was at the very top of the day. And I remember coming off stage and just collapsing and praying I got two hours of sleep before I had my next. (laughs) That is the advantage of period studies that you can have a little nap in between. Um, So uh, in in terms of, 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 of the things that you didn't know when you were like figuring out how to produce a show at Fringe, um, did you learn from Jeanette, from from the your classmates? Where did you, where were you turning to learn about how to produce a show at the Fringe? Um, uh, firstly, Fringe has a really wonderful way of, I guess, sort of teaching you how to produce. They break every single aspect of it aspect of it down into about ten or so forms that you have to fill out. 
So in a way, that was kind of a training course of some sort. Um, it really, it really gave me like the outline of what to follow. Um, and then the the two people I leaned on the absolute most at all times was, of course, Jeanette, um, with all her experience, and my partner Ganesh, um, who has produced before and he knows a lot. He's been a part of the tent program as well as a bunch of uh, producing sort of training programs. So he knew a lot, and with the combination of of um, those two people, I was able to throw this thing together. Nice, nice. Um, now I will I will turn uh, to Michael for a second um, because Misha mentioned that this 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 play has been floating around for a little while. Um, what was where did this play come from? When did you write it, and and how, when did you first show it to to Misha? Uh, so as far as when I started writing it, it would have been about a year ago. I was finishing up the first draft, uh, actually exactly during the Fringe last summer. Like had the finish on the last day of the Fringe show I was doing. Like literally between like May that I had gone to see and then I hadn't eaten before. Finished the last couple pages and was the first draft. Even before like the first draft was fully done, I probably showed you some of that early stuff, right? When it was just like the first couple of scenes and like opening monologues. Um, I'm a bit of an oversharer with my writing. I love to show people things in like finished stages and start getting like vibes and opinions and like just like those first gut reactions for people when they start to read stuff. So early versions of the script were completely drastically different than what we've been working on since. But some of the cores have been there for quite a while. Oh, um, I remember I remember Jeanette mentioned the pigeon earlier. I remember the day I, I read the pigeon um, and was absolutely blown away about how genius this was, was summer of last year. Yeah. And I'd already seen, I think, a couple of scenes or read a couple of scenes. Um, and this is I and on and back then I had no idea. Who my was. I <laughs> was sort of like this mishmash of, of different things. What is this? But I know it's amazing. Okay. Uh, so, Jeanette, I don't know if I ever told you this story. Where Pigeon came from is... Yes, I know the story. Oh, Go ahead. Sorry. Tell them. <laughs> so I was working on the script one day. I was just like sitting out at a bar with Fred and typing and we were chatting. And she left to do some other stuff. I just stuck around and work. And her plate was sitting there. And so I look up and there's literally a pigeon perched on the table looking at me like, can I have the plate? And it would not go away no matter how hard I shoot it. And the thought of my brain I had was just like, okay, you want to play hardball? I'm ready you into my plate. <laughs> no idea where nice nice this is interesting you speaking about about being an overshare i don't know if you've read any of austin cleon's work um for example the book share your work he uh and he talks about the importance of of sharing work um and, and, and quite widely that, that that you know we don't necessarily need to hide it from from the world we don't need to hide it under a bushel we can like uh show it and share it and uh and we can learn so much and i'm sure that in showing it to people, you were learning about what people were, how people were reacting uh, as you did so. And I think also it comes that feeling of like wanting to share with a larger audience. But I think also comes from my writing background. Um, you know, I really cut my teeth doing like sketch work in like big writing. Where we would have like eight to ten like big writers working on a show. So because of that, it's always just sort of been like part of my process where I'm like, okay, just like this first draft. Don't really worry about the editing. Don't worry about polishing it give it to someone and like see what their opinions are because if you go in and on your own no idea if you're going down a spiral to writing isn't actually any there's something about about writing uh where you know that is that there's literally almost always the fear 
Um, and that's why whenever I write something, I put it away for like two weeks to a month distance and then come back to it and, and try to look at it as if I wasn't the person who wrote it. And suddenly then I realize, oh no, it's not as good as I thought, or, or, you know, here's the things that actually work. It's funny how distance will, will allow you to do that. Uh, Jeanette, as, as the dramaturg and director of this show, um, what was it that first drew you to this particular script? Okay. So quite simply, the writing. Uh, it was it's a very early draft. It wasn't yet in a full script form. It was, as they've described, fragments. But there is something in Michael's voice, something in the way he crafts a word on the page that really attracted me. And I knew this is good writing. This is worthy of us digging into and you know taking further. Um, also, of course, I did period study with these fellas and the rest of the team as well. And got to know them as artists. And this piece is about, well, if, and Michael, you didn't mention it, but it is autobiographical to right. some degree. And getting to know you during that intensive process illuminated what you were writing about me. And it became even more interesting as a result. Um, and it sort of sprang from there. Um, yeah, there's, I will say, you know, you there's nothing... There's nothing like the period study to teach you about your classmates and yourself um, and, 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 and really who you are as performers. I think there's, there's something about that intensive weeks of, of, of rehearsal and, and, and immersion into a period and then like a six to eight hour performance of all of the scenes that you've worked, worked on uh, to really show you who you are and who your classmates are. And uh, uh, and and everybody else who works on it gets to see that too. Period study is like a festival, right? I mean, you're saying six to eight hours. I've had as long as twelve hours. Yes, uh, yeah. You know, because it depends on the the size of the class. If everyone's going to have a fair amount to work on, and it's a huge class, it's going to extend the length of it. But it is a festival atmosphere and a festival approach to the period and to the era. And so we see a lot of faces, a lot of. Uh, different sides of these actors. Now, Jeanette, you have uh, uh, just a, a history of of, of supporting uh, playwrights and playwriting voices and new playwriting voices, um, and and I, that's a passion of yours. So, um, when did you? How was that developed as as something that you that you focus on yourself that that become a? We've lost you. Uh oh. We're back. Hold on. We're back. We're back. Okay. We missed it. saved it. So I was just saying about, and I can fix this later, um, <clears throat> just about how, just wondering about how this became uh, a passion of yours, something that you that you wanted to focus on, the the, the supporting new playwriting voices. Ah, oh, wow. That's a really good question, Jill. Um, it's, it's really hard to say. I think it's it all springs from the same seeds as wanting to work with young actors. Uh, it's you know young creators and not necessarily young in years but in 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 uh, career. Um, there's a sort of joy and also the fear, but our, there's also not knowing yet fully how how evil and mean the world can be, and so there's risk taking. Um, and you know what else? It keeps me young, or at least I like to think that it does. Um, and I, you know, yeah, I feel it. I feel it to to stay 
sort of on the pulse of what is be what's being bandied about now. What are the subjects that interest our new writers, our new actors, our new designers, our new creators? And uh, I really see the, the the older I get, the more I seek joy in the room, and forget this idea of some sort of impossible to achieve perfection. It's about how we work together in the room. That's going to be the product. That's going to be what ends up on the stage. And if we have a shitty time, excuse my language. Oops, edited. Um, yeah, no, 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 no. This is a podcast. We can swear all we want. Okay. <laughs> so, we can, so if we have a shitty time in the room, there's probably going to be some of that shit on the stage that we don't want. So um, I'm quite in, I'm quite inspired. I think that theater is one of the few industries where um, people of various ages work together yeah. regularly. And I've I've noticed um, that over the years, the more people that I know who are from different generations, the more the less I sort of calcify as I get older. My outlook doesn't doesn't calcify. Uh, a continual growing uh, and and learning from different generations as we get to know each other. Um, and I think that that theater is is really the one industry that that brings people together. Uh, and actually makes them work as equals. Other industries might have the older people above and the younger people below, but theater doesn't really do that. Yeah, that's really well said. In fact, I've often said that I feel like these young folks are mentoring me. So it's not that image of, you know, you're older, therefore you're the mentor, and they're, you know, the the one that has to learn everything. It, it works both ways. It absolutely worth, works both ways. Now, Jeanette, you mentioned the joy in the rehearsal hall, which is so important because... I think that everybody who's who's ever rehearsed something, uh, and of course this kind of thing is also famous in the media, has had an experience in a rehearsal hall that was less than joyful, that might have been uh, really bad. Is the pursuit of joy in the rehearsal hall something that you have always pursued, or is that something that you, that you came to as you uh, 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 practiced directing and, and dramaturgy? That is another excellent question. Of course, if you ask the me of 20 or 30 years ago, I would have said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course, I'm pursuing joy. But if I look back now, uh, no, there was I was much more fixated on end product and, you know, getting it right and impressing the right people. And um, yeah, product over process. Are we still uh, I feel like we're breaking apart. No, you're still good. You're still good. Okay, this is. Sorry, this is my computer trying to open up Outlook in this moment. Oh, okay. That's what it is. Sorry. Can I do? Uh, yeah, okay. I'll go <laughs> You're going to edit all this out, and I'm going to pick up again from, um, you know, as you know, I spent a lot of years at the Stratford Festival, wonderful years, and I don't regret a second of it, but there's an enormous amount of pressure there to meet a sort certain standard and to create something that looks like the machine made it, right? The Stratford a quality control machine. Um, so it, I didn't know it at the time, but I was yearning to break free of that and make a mess and, you know, try things that are not necessarily right. And in fact, what I've learned recently is the less certainty I have that the product is going to be good, the more exciting the process is. I know that sounds backwards. Um, but Misha and I just worked on a show actually recently where we had no, I had no idea if that show was going to work. No idea at all. And it made the process so much more exciting and exhilarating. 
and a kind of freedom. It released me from, you know, this nonsense of I have to I have to be great in some way. I think the mess is healthy for the theater. I think that 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 when something is is too polished, too too clever, too clean, that that it feels it feels like an AI picture. Yep. Which looks great, but there's something something wrong, you know? It's like the hands have like six fingers or something. It just like it looks on the surface great, but underneath it it it's missing something. And mess really gives us the opportunity to 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 really play in the muck to really find some real meaning i think yeah 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 because otherwise it's polished otherwise we've polished all the the edges off of it right we want we want prickles we want we want you know muck and broken things broken is fabulous to you know i mean i hate to say it but it is that is what theater is right so yeah yeah. yeah, we we there are edges in life, and when our theater doesn't have those edges, it it feels something's missing. Yep, yep. Um, all right, so I'm going to ask. I'll start with uh, the two George Brown students with my favorite question, and we will we will move to Jeanette afterwards. But uh, well, my favorite question is always to find out what people's theater origin stories are. Um, everybody has that thing that was the moment where suddenly something awoke in them and said, this is, this is what I want to do. And so I'll ask for each of you, what, what was that for you? Doug Obers? Sure. Um, it's hard to collect finger on exactly what that was because I, I think there was like a lot of little moments that should have given me the hint earlier in my life. And looking back now, it all makes so much sense. Like as a child, me and my cousin, who is now a drama teacher, we would put on shows in the basement for our relatives. We'd make them come down, pay a nickel, and we would sing and dance at like three and four. It's like from the earliest age, we would be performing for them. And I loved doing plays in school. I did musical in high school, kept doing musicals through university. But somehow in my brain, there was still a part of me that's like, oh, I can do this on the side. This doesn't need to be the thing I spend all of my time doing. And then eventually I realized, oh, wait, that's that's wrong. This is the thing I need to be doing all of the time, or I am miserable because I know what I could be doing. Were you were you about to pursue something else? Did you were you uh, like going to be like I'm going to study architecture or something like that? Was the was there another thing that was going to be your study while you did theater on the side? There wasn't back. <laughs> I had a full career as an engineer, five years. Okay. Tried to make that work, was absolutely miserable during it, and mm. felt like. I had a boss sit me down for a performance review and basically say, Michael, you've been miserable this past year. What is going on? <laughs> and I kind of had to admit to them that I'm like, like, truly, I don't want to be here. I'm doing this for the And, you know, had a very nice boss who, you know, I had the kind of relationship with where I could tell them that straight up. Not be worried about getting fired right away. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when you made that that discovery, when you were like, OK, so I'm miserable as an engineer. Um, was it difficult for you to, 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 you know, come out to your family as an actor and say that I'm going to go to theater school and this sort of thing was, was that, what was that like? It was definitely a little scary. I mean, it's a weird sort of thing to have to sit down at like late in your twenties and be like, so I'm full on switching my career path and I'm going back to school and all of that. Um, they were very supportive. I was honestly a little concerned about because I have very strong memories about 
trying to go into a more performance-related field coming out of high school, getting shot pretty hard. Um, to the point where I was like, I want to audition for this program at U of T. And I remember the response was, well, you don't. Um, oh. So that was a little rough. And I think having talked to them, there is some debate about how exactly that conversation went. Because I remember that exact phrase of, no, you don't. And they're like, we never said that to you. <laughs> right. Now, now, Michael, how old were you when you started at George Brown? Oh, jeez. Uh, when did we start? 20... 2021. 2021. Yeah, so I was 29. Okay. I asked for a very specific reason, because when I started at George Brown, I was 18. 18, uh -huh. 19, and uh, I and most of my classmates were the same age, and I just have distinct memories of uh, the late great Peter Wilde spending like just expounding on how he wished that we were all thirty. Like, if, I wish you would come back to me when you're thirty, and we were all like, "Shut up, old man. We know what we're doing." And uh, in some ways, in some ways, I wish that I was thirty too. You know, I wish that he's in some ways he's right. Um, did you do you feel like you've had because you had time outside of uh, of of school, time to, to to get a little older, that you had a bit of a different experience than your classmates who may have been younger had? Certainly, um, it's hard though because you would think being thirty, it's like oh, you feel so stable in yourself and like you know who you are before you come in at thirty, and I'm realizing. Just as much as everyone else, I am still discovering that all of that is coming out now. I think what it did do for me was a certain sense of and really solidified in my brain that like I know why I'm here, and you know no matter how bad it gets, I I always have memory of like remember what it was like being an engineer for all those years. Like you spent so many years of time working at the thing you didn't want to do, so you here, and I think it helps. You know, it helps keep me humble. Helps keep me motivated. Um, there's, sure. there's also that thing that I've heard multiple actors say, and I think I think is true that if if you can do anything else, do that. Yeah, um, and I think yeah. having that experience probably shows you that this really is it, and there isn't any doubt. Because I think if there is any sort of like, oh, like I could go learn psychology and do psychotherapy, um, you might. Do a career switch. Mm -hmm. you might you, you might you might really struggle in the industry, the, the industry that's really or in an industry rather that's really really tough. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Misha, I would love to hear your theater origin story. Yeah, it's it's actually surprise. It's not surprising. It's very similar to Michael. Um, I also grew up. I I remember as or probably as early as five, I would get up on my parents' bed and pretend I was Afro Levine, and do a concert for my grandmother and my mom, um, and just had the most fun performing. I was always addicted to performing in some way, shape, or form. But my theater journey sort of came in two waves, I would say. Um, the first wave was the first time I ever was put in a musical or a theater show. I was in Willy Wonka Jr. in grade five, um, and I was cast as Mike TV. It was, it was my first time ever having lines, playing a character. And I, I very distinctly remember walking on stage, holding my little Nintendo DS, which was my prop, gluing my eyes to it for fear of seeing the whole audience in front of me and and just doing it um and having the time of my life and then afterwards my parents coming up to me and being like oh you you can act 
and, and they were shocked as well. Um, and I was shocked. And then shortly after that, I, I did a couple of art schools. I did an arts elementary school, an arts high school, um, did lots of community theater. Then I went to university for neuroscience um, and studied neuroscience for a while. I'm, I have a couple of published papers actually out there. Um, and it my, so my second wave came at the end of my degree. Um, it was in the middle of the pandemic. I was in an evolutionary psychology class. And I just remember sitting there and being like, I want to be acting right now. Um, at the time, I was directing a production of Into the Woods online. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> um, and um, and I was I just all I wanted to do was be anywhere but there. And so I graduated and on a whim applied to George Brown and began my professional career on a whim. So how how old were you when you started at George Brown? I was, um, I must have been 22. Okay. Yeah, 22. Okay. Yeah. So not quite, because, you know, it, it's funny because I think, the reason why I think uh, Peter was often right about, uh, and I don't know if he knew this, but he probably did. Um, when we are 18, going in, starting in the theater school, we are so goddamn stubborn and so convinced that we know everything that it's hard to teach us. We're also very malleable. So people get away with shit, but we have, when you get a little older, you don't have the backbone, but you also know a little bit more about what you don't know. So I think that, that, you know, it's, 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 it was probably important for us to go out and do a little something before we went to theater school. But, you know, we were young kids and we knew better than that guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeanette, I'm so curious because, uh, uh, you know, I know you, but I don't know the answer to this. What is your theater origin story? Well, uh, it's very vivid for me. It's very early. Uh, there's no theater in my family at all, but when I was just about to turn three, my birthday is New Year's Eve. So I, you know, it's very easy to locate where we are in time. It was Christmas before I was turning three and my parents took me to Christmas play in the church. We didn't go to church regularly, but for Christmas we did. And I remember every second of this performance, I was riveted. And at the end, uh, in the, there was an intermission in the middle and the baby Jesus had been put into a manger. And some of the other kids went down to peek into the manger. But my mother wouldn't let me go. So I was going, imagining Jesus in the manger. and I wasn't allowed to go look. But in the, at the end, they walked up the center aisle and the woman playing Mary was carrying Jesus in her arms. So as she was passing, I got up, and this is how I know I was really little, got up on the pew and over her arm so I could see baby Jesus. And she tipped her elbow so that I couldn't see. And in that moment, it, I had like a lightning bolt realization. There's no baby. It's make-believe. It's fabulous. Right? So in that moment, this eureka of the magic that I had believed this baby was there the whole time and there's no baby, there was no turning back. I went home. I made my brother play all the other parts. We did. We acted this thing out over and over. I did. I also did basement, what I called basement theater, where all my friends and neighbors and all had to come and pay money. And we did Cinderella and Rapunzel and all kinds of plays. And I, there was no looking back. But that, it's very, very clear in my memory, that that event. Yeah. Do you remember? So that was an event that happened when you were three that sort of like 
became like this this mind virus that kept you going. But at a certain point, you made a choice and said, I'm going to do this yeah. for a living. Yeah. Do you remember that moment? Because that there's the child's realization. And then there's something when you're older where you just keep going with it. Yeah. No, I always knew. I, I always knew. I, 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 yeah, I did. I was doing dramas, drama things during uh, public school. And then I went to university and studied theater. And my father was determined I should be a lawyer. He kept saying, you're very smart. You should be a lawyer. And I said, no, 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 no. The only thing was they wouldn't let me go to NTS. I wouldn't mm -hmm. they support because NTS was not a university. Uh, right. So I went to university. But, uh, but I always knew there was really no other. There was no other path. I've done other jobs, but they're always the side hustle, right? right. The, the Royal Bank, and I was I waited tables for centuries and that sort of thing. But uh, no, I've always I've always done theater. Yeah, my my day job is my side hustle, and I'm fortunate that my manager knows that. Like, you right. know, right. I have I have an office job. They know that that's not the real that's job. Not, you know, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, no, Jeanette. You you're living you're living in in Nova in in New Newfoundland Newfoundland. I was like going through the through the all of the maritime provinces there for some reason. You're living in Newfoundland, but you haven't always lived in Newfoundland. Uh, what was your draw to to Newfoundland? I was really lucky that about ten well in 2009, so more than ten years ago now, um, I was brought out. Look, at that time, I was executive director of the Shakespeare Globe Center of Canada, which doesn't exist anymore, but you may remember it. And in my capacity in that job, uh, I was invited to come out to Newfoundland to uh, give my opinion. They were building a kind of pretend globe theater thing uh, to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the establishment of the first uh, English colony in in Cupid's Newfoundland. Um, and I got to know the folks that were doing that. I uh, fell in love with the location, with the idea, with the building. They invited me to come and do a text workshop the next year, which was fabulous and fun and filling and wonderful. And then the three lads who formed it all went off in different directions uh, to Stratford and to various places and asked me to step in temporarily as interim artistic director uh, while they were looking for a local person who could do it. And that was enough time for me to really dig my heels into the province and understand that I loved it there. My husband came out. To visit, we did some holidays. He fell in love with it too, and at one point, we bought a country property, like way around the bay, um, and would come for a couple of months a year to spend time there. One day, sitting out on the deck with a glass of wine, we looked at each other and said, "Jesus, what? We just moved. Like we love it so much." So we we bought a house in St. John's, moved there, and bang, the the pandemic hit. Like within uh, two months of moving there, so it was a very strange start. Mm -hmm. But but anyway, we've emerged out of that, and <laughs> and we now we uh, it's fab, it's wonderful. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Now now Misha and Michael, you guys would have started at George Brown during the pandemic. So, um, what was were you doing Zoom classes at that time? Was were you? In person? Was it a mix of the two? What was what was what was school like at that time? Yes. <laughs> it was it was a little bit of everything. Um I think I think when we first came in, it was first semester was mixed, I think, right? Yeah, I think yeah. it was three days online and two days in person. Or, or it was Monday, Wednesday. Oh no, it changed based on what 
Yes. So, um, so two days you were you were in person, and three days you were online, and it was like that for the whole first semester. Always masked when you were in person. Um, so you can imagine us sort of in our like little rooms doing movement classes and 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 doing improv on Zoom. It was it was very very strange. Let's um, wild classes. We did contact improv without touching each other, which was uh, an experience. Yeah, that is wild. Yeah, that is wild. It really was improv was really interesting because we we had we got to put on backgrounds and and sort of immerse ourselves. Same thing with storytelling. We storytelling was really really fun because we got to bring props and it was a bit more immersive. Um, and then our second semester, there was a, there was a spike at the beginning of it, right? So we were completely online for, and then and then we were in person the whole yeah, time, all in person the rest of that semester. Yeah, but always masked. So that was very strange. We were watching the third year rep shows and they were. They had these special masks. I think Jeanette directed. Yes. Yeah, um, costume, the costumes had masks. Right. We did, our, we did our Shakespeare scene study, our our contemporary scene study, all yeah. masks. Um, yeah. With air filters right. in the room. Yeah. And the, the the idea of doing improv while masked is about as bad as, as trying to sing chorally while masked. Because, you know, if you're on Zoom, there's a, what is it, 0.5 millisecond delay, which is just enough to fuck everything up (laughs) timing doesn't work i remember early on in the pandemic our work would there would be a birthday and everybody was like all right we're gonna sing happy birthday to the person and it was such a mess that we never did it again because it was the most dissonant disgusting thing anybody had ever heard so i can only imagine what uh what improv is like when the timing is off by milliseconds yeah well um I mean, that was definitely a thing, but it's funny that you mentioned music because we did music online as well. And we we were kind of sent recordings and we would have to send videos of us practicing these recordings. And then at the end of the year, we all recorded ourselves singing just our parts and then doing kind of a dance to Beyonce's single ladies. Um, <laughs> and then it was kind of thrown together in a giant Zoom collage. And it, it, was, it was honestly kind of a disaster, <laughs> but it was it was fun. It was lots of fun dancing in my... <laughs> dancing in my house with my tights on it. <laughs> I'm trying to remember because you know, you know, when I was at, 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 in theater school, my, I, you know, tiny room is what I lived in because I didn't need it. I can only imagine trying to do any kind of movement class in a tiny room. Uh, oh God! Did you have to rearrange your rooms? Like, did, what did you have to do? There was a whole big thing with structures at the start of year. We got this much space in the computer, and fully our movement teacher was very accommodating she is lovely she's the most she's one of the most accommodating people i know suzanne suzanne liska oh um wonderful person i didn't get the opportunity my room i i I lived in a small apartment at the time with my parents and and i i quite literally had like i think 50 square feet it was nothing half of it was taken up by my single bed um so i had about this much space i like maybe a meter of space (laughs) to to do full-on like movement and, and all that stuff there was some stuff Suzanne made us do though, like things with like feeling like the objects around your room and moving with them in like interesting ways. Yeah, and, cool and there were cool, there were other cool accommodations. Like she would have us go outside for a walk and and sort of notice things on our walk, and then peep. I remember correctly based off that. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Hmm. Yeah, nice. they made it work. They definitely made. Yeah, it. yeah. You have to. You have to. You have to. You know, you've got to keep it. You've got to keep people engaged, and it is hard to keep people engaged in a like in a digital meeting for any length of time oh yeah 
Um, just returning uh, to Fringe, you're you're going to be uh, bringing this show to the uh, the Tarragon main space. Um, have you guys had your site tour yet? Is that coming up? Are you how do how do you feel about about moving into the space? You saw it, yeah. Already had the site tour. Honestly, I think we hit the lottery with getting the space. Like we were looking at the list of spaces when they were figuring out what venue we'd be in. I'm pretty sure Tarragon was the one we were like fingers crossed, like praying for a night like. Here. Originally, we really wanted crows. We really wanted crows. It, mostly because it, we, we we're all in deep debt. All, all of us that live here. <laughs> right. And so we wanted to, to go to crows, but it, they're, they're not an option this year. Um, oh. year one was. It was such a... Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that crows was in, was in this year. It's it's always hard when some of the venues like switch around. Yeah. Um, not the not the big venue, at least. I don't know if their small space is, is in it or not, but we only... We were in the large venues category. Yeah. We only got... Yeah. Um, as you as you prepare for the opening of Fringe in just a, a couple of weeks, as we record this, because this will be uh, be going online in the middle of Fringe, um, what is, aside from performing this show, what are you most looking forward to at Fringe this year? Oh, God. Good question. Um, I'm really excited to see some of the other work. There's some really, really exciting stuff going on. Um, Frankenstein S comes to mind. Um, the Bad Mitzvah looks really cool. Yeah, Man with a Golden Heart or whatever it's called. Yeah, musical. Yeah, yeah. There's some really really cool shows going on. Um, and I'm also really interested to see how the show lives on stage because we have no idea, right? We have no idea how people will react to it. We don't. We, I mean, we've only blocked like, yeah. like half a yeah. third of it even, right? So it's. I, I guess we'll sort of be in the thick of it. So it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, about responding. One of the things I love about Fringe so much is the camaraderie between all the little companies and, you know, sharing space with other companies and being in line and, and encouraging each other to come to each other's shows that, that the whole, the, the, the large extended family of it is just an amazing and powerful part of the whole experience. Yeah. The Fringe family is an amazing thing that um, you really start to experience over time. I remember years ago uh, doing a fringe tour starting in Montreal and there was a little seminar about 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 performing uh, at fringe in Montreal and um one of the artists the artist that was running the the thing said right off the top just remember there is audience enough for everyone mm-hmm. and those words became because I I would see you know I'll occasionally see companies that are like we're competing for audience and it's like you know you're you're not there is audience enough for everyone you just have to the more you share the more you get out of it and the more audience you find so it's like one of those the fringe family when it shares is a beautiful beautiful thing what a beautiful sentiment i love that i like the concept of that wow yeah yeah um now okay so we're back at the transact this year for the fringe tent fringe patio um which to me is nostalgia and for other people is strange um it's nostalgia yeah yeah yeah, yeah. of course of course yeah. um there are shows that, that you're that you're looking forward to seeing and, and 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 things like that are you because the the thing about performing a show for the first time um and i i i've found this um is there's a moment when you start and you're like especially for the first performance where you might not be on stage, but you are holding your breath because you're waiting for that moment. There's a, whether it's a laugh, a gasp, something that will tell you 
that it's working. And that moment is like the most important moment of any show. And I've, I've had that quite a few times. We're doing shows with, with Keystone Theater, with other, other, other devised shows where you're just waiting. If you get that laugh, you know it's working because no, nobody's seen it outside of you. And so it, it, it's a mystery. It, do you know what that moment is for you when, when this happens that you'll know that it's working? Or have you not discovered that yet? For me, my gut reaction is that it's like the range from the audience. Like I want them to be laughing at the jokes, but also settling into the more serious moments. Because I think my big worry is that they're going to think it's one type of thing or the other. And yeah, I, I wouldn't worry about that. I, I mean, it's an interesting question, Rick. I'm uh, sorry, Phil. What did I do that for? It, it happens. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry about apologies. That's okay. <laughs> specifically, or just any and other Rick specifically. Rick specifically. Um, yeah, I will have people reply to emails to okay. say, "Hey, Rick," and my name is like right there. So anyway, go, please go. Sorry about that. Because I'm very well aware that, that what your name is. Um, uh, uh, we I don't know yet what that 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 one moment is that you're asking about, uh, because we don't completely know what we have yet, and that's sort of part of the fun. Um, at, at this show that I was talking about earlier that Misha and I just did also had uh, the, the pendulum would swing very far between uh, raucous farce and deep drama all contained in the same show and we had no idea if that was going to work and it did so I am no longer afraid of a show that has mixed uh, mediums in it because I know they can work uh, but what that moment will be I don't know yet I'll let you know <laughs> please, please. I'll, I'll be interested to hear um, when you, after you've had your your first performance, what that moment was and how it felt when when you when you heard it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I think the moment. I mean, I I have a few guesses what the moment. You, yeah. Um, but I won't share. You come see the show. <laughs> um, but I I think what what really what really for me as an actor, what sort of the um, the thing for me is when I can not necessarily the laughs. But when I can really feel the audience sort of leaning in and listening and, and being with me. Uh, so I'm really curious when that is going yeah. to happen in the show, because I know I know for this specific run, um, it, it can really happen at any moment, <laughs> uh, d- depending on the audience member. And and for that last show, Lift It Up, Jeanette, Jeanette and I just did. Um, I, I remember th- there's a scene, a very, very dramatic, hard scene um, that comes right after a very comedic scene. Um, and I remember coming off stage for the comedic scene, hearing all the laughter and knowing that I'm about to walk on stage sobbing and, and the audience is going to think comedy still. And 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 sort of and, and you hear the laughs kind of at the beginning, they kind of trickle in and out. And the really, really addictive thing for me in that run became the moment when I felt them clue in and then lean in and then listen. Um. That that feeling is the best. There's nothing like pulling the rug out from an audience like that. It's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> that, that very moment. I mean, I experienced it so much as the director too, because I could feel the audience feel a little ashamed that they had laughed. Right? They're going, "Oh my god!" A minute ago, I was laughing at this young man, and yeah. but this tr- this is the trauma that he was going through. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, huge for the audience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love I love it when an audience reacts to things like this, especially when it's like visceral like that. You can really 
for me, that's when you're like, and that's why we do theater. And that's why this isn't a movie or a TV show. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, the audience is a beast. The audience is like an entity in of itself. It's like groupthink, yeah. right? It's yeah. it's so, and they're all different. Um, it's really, really interesting facing that every night, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. hopefully conquering it. Maybe not. And being very aware that every audience is different, so that you're not starting to build up expectations. Well, that is death. I've, I've, yeah. you know, you you have that that mistake. You do that once. Yes. Like you have a show where you do that once, and then you never do it again because you know. You're like, oh, this is the funny part. And you're like, and nobody laughs. And you're like, well, you're so fucked. So like, <laughs> then you just have to like reevaluate everything and be like, we can't have any expectations. We just have to do this and let them decide what they think is funny. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Misha, Michael, Jeanette, thank you so much for, for joining me. I really appreciate your time, especially if, if, having joined me just after a rehearsal. Uh, thanks so much. Oh, it was fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Thank you for for having this conversation with us. We really appreciate it. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.